613. I had 613 laws to keep. Think about that. Do you really understand how many that is? And I knew them all, and I kept them, mostly. So I'm sitting across from Jesus, and he says, Nicodemus, the rules aren't important. I'm paraphrasing him, but but basically, that's what he said. I mean, you have to see it from my perspective. (laughs) I had spent this entire time. So, the prior day, I had seen him basically turn the entire temple upside down. The building, mind you, that I had spent my entire life trying to preserve. So, you understand why I wanted to go have a conversation with him in a secluded place at night. I mean, how would you feel if someone says, someone you trusted, they tell you that everything that you had devoted your whole life to, that it misses the point entirely? (laughs) What a fool. That's exactly how it makes you feel. So I said to him, Only one law sounds a little bit too good to be true. Because it did. All I had to do was believe that he was the Messiah. That he was the the one that was promised. He just glossed right over it like it was some simple thing. And then he started talking about light and, and darkness and, and evil deeds and, and truth. And I'm thinking, can we go back to where you made this really complicated thing not complicated? You see, my whole life was in all of those details. Actually, no. My religion was in those details, in the complications of the law, in making sure that every T was crossed. And basically, I thought that was what would save me. 613 laws. I was wrong. It was love that would save me. For God so loved 
Good morning. My name is Gary Weber. I'm the pastor here at Southside, and I'm so glad you joined us for worship this morning. Uh, we have been, for the last several weeks, working through uh, the very last few hours of Jesus' life, and we've been doing it uh, a little bit differently. We've been looking at John chapter 18 and 19, at all the people Jesus encountered from the time he was arrested to the time of his death. And we have noticed that as each person has met Jesus, they've really come to a crossroads in their faith journey. The same crossroads that many of us come to uh, when we consider the claims of Jesus. Uh, the things that Jesus said about himself, um, the, 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 the promises that Jesus made, they're so wonderful, so fantastic that Jesus can't just be a good teacher. C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord, but he cannot just be a good teacher. And we've looked at each of these characters who have met Jesus on his way to the cross and seen how they have come to that same crossroad and all the things that they encounter that will cause them to go in one direction or another. That will either cause them to say, yes, he is Lord, or to move away from him and say, no, he isn't Lord. Things like uh, fear, things like wounds of our past, things like an unwillingness to let go of our pride, things like shame, things like doubt. All these things that we battle in our life today are the same things that each one of those people who encountered Jesus on his way to the cross encountered as well. So we're going to look at another idea today. And this idea is a little different than some of the others because this idea really is for those of us who believe. For those of us who are here today who say, you know what, we hear the stories, it's Palm Sunday. This is the week that Christians all around the world set aside to remember the final week of Jesus' life, the sacrifice he made in anticipation of gathering next week to celebrate his resurrection. We set this side away, we set this week aside to just think about that, to contemplate that and what it means. But for some, maybe your faith is something that you don't really talk about. It's something that's deeply personal for you. And, and maybe, maybe there's some doubt that causes you to question maybe some of the things you believe. But, but today, through the people that we encounter on Jesus' journey to the cross, I want to ask you just a simple question, because I think it's the question that these individuals ask us. And that's this, will you keep your faith hidden or will you go public? Will you keep your faith private and hidden, something that's really just between you and God, or are you willing to go public? Now, the minute I say that, there's a little bit of uh, anxiety that rises up inside of all of us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, some of that comes up and you think, well, that sounds so stereotypical, you know, Christians, pushy Christians, judgmental Christians trying to push their way on us. And, and for those of us who are Christians, we don't, we don't want to be classified that way. But, but I want you to think about something in our, in our world today. You know, we live in an interesting time in society where society makes anything having to do with our sexuality very public, but it demands that faith be very private, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting? Like everything you think is, is public knowledge on social media. But if you talk about faith, well, that's a, that's a private matter. That's something just between you and your God. And here's what happens. Some of the deepest questions that we have as human beings go unanswered because we fail to talk about faith. We fail to talk about what we believe, about the things that really matter. And we're so afraid that somebody might think we're being judgmental, that we're so afraid that somebody might think that somehow we're pushing our thoughts off on them, that we just hold back in saying anything at all. But many of the same people, and maybe even many, some, some of you who are in this room today, have questions about faith, have questions about eternity, and, and, and you've been bullied into not asking those questions. And others have been bullied into not saying anything about what they believe. You know, Christianity, for all you can say about it, really isn't a religion that's based on theology. It's not a religion that's based even on a book as much as we 
as much as we gain and learn from the Bible, it's a religion that's actually based on a single event in history. One event, one thing that happened. And like any history at all, history requires that somebody report and account for what happened in order for future generations to know. And so as Christians, we believe that something significant happened over 2,000 years ago. That a man named Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and that three days later God raised him from the dead. And because of that, we have hope in him. That's an event that redefines history, and it redefines all of us. And so today what I want to talk about are two characters that we meet at the end of John chapter 19. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before or not when we read these the story of these two individuals, but, but really, if they had not done what they had done, you and I might not know the story the same way today. That these two individuals, like maybe many of you who are here today, kept their faith private. It was something that was hidden, something that they kept close to themselves. They didn't talk to a lot of people about what they believed. But when the time came, they went public in such a significant way that I believe it's part of the reason you and I are here today sharing this story. If you have a Bible, open to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll begin down in verse 38. John 19, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen. Uh, There's also a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one at home, please take that as our gift to you today. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. After these things, basically, Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion and his death after these things Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews now John told us back in John chapter 12 verse 42 that there were Pharisees who actually believed in Jesus but they were afraid to say anything about it publicly so John's going to introduce us to two of these people and we just met one Joseph of Arimathea verse 38 asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Now, one of the things that's important to know about uh, about this day and age and and what happened when people were executed publicly, uh, the Romans, if uh, if their criminal was crucified, they would leave the body of the criminal on the cross as a reminder to anybody who would see it um, that this is not how we behave in Rome. Like if you, if you do whatever this person did, this is what will happen to you. And so they would leave the corpse of the person on the cross uh, for, for days and days and, and weeks and weeks. But in Jerusalem, because the Jews had laws and rules about bodies... And about how a, a dead body could, could make a whole area unclean and all the people around it unclean. They allowed the Jews to take the bodies down. But if nobody claimed the body of a criminal, the body would be taken and it would be thrown into the city dump. The city dump was a place called Gehenna. In your Bible, it's actually often translated as hell. And, and there was an eternal fire that kept burning there. And, and so the bodies would just be thrown out with all of the, all of the garbage and all of the trash. If the person was Jewish, uh, they would take the body and they would bury it in an unmarked tomb. Uh, not with the family, because if the person 
had been a criminal, they wouldn't want that criminal to corrupt the dead bodies of all the righteous people in the tombs. So they would take the body and they would bury the body somewhere else. So Joseph of Arimathea is going and asking for Jesus' body, and he's asking for his body because he doesn't want Jesus' body to be treated like the bodies of all the other criminals uh, who are always who are always executed in, in this day and age. Now, Pilate gives the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. There may be two reasons why Pilate did this. First of all, because we know that Pilate didn't really believe that, that Jesus was guilty. And second of all, he possibly saw an opportunity to make the Jews mad. He really didn't get along with the Jewish leadership. And so by giving the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea, he, he had an opportunity again to, to maybe infuriate the local Jews. So verse 39, we introduced, we're introduced to the second character. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, Nicodemus, you'll remember, had gone to see Jesus back in John chapter 3. So keep your finger here and maybe turn back to John chapter 3, and let's just look at this encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. Jesus is stirring up all kinds of controversy, and Nicodemus goes to Jesus quietly at night so nobody else knows. Remember, he's one of the Pharisees who believed, but he's believing secretly. We know there was at least Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. There were probably others. So Nicodemus, back in John 3, goes to Jesus, and now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we, notice it's not just him, we, know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you have done if God were not with him. So Nicodemus recognizes right away, hey, you are not just another good teacher. You're not just a prophet. There's something different about you. We see it in you. We recognize it in you. And we want to know about it. But we're coming to you at night because we're not really sure. Because none of the other Pharisees, none of the other religious establishment was willing to acknowledge who Jesus was. So Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation, and then Jesus says something really profound towards the end of their exchange. Look down at verse 14. So Jesus says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now I'm sure Nicodemus goes away, and of course he knows the Old Testament, he knows the story about about Moses and the serpent and how Moses lifted that snake up and all the people, all the Israelites who had been bitten by the snakes could look up at that snake and they would be healed. He knew that, but he's like, what does that have to do with anything? So he goes back and he has conversations with the other Jews. He's still not public about his faith. He, he encounters Jesus at several other points in the story. You read the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. And they, they throw this woman at, at Jesus' feet. And, and the scripture says there are Pharisees all around basically testing Jesus. Nicodemus may have been in that crowd when, when there was a man who had been born blind. And Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath. And all the Pharisees were up in arms about it and questioning Jesus. You know, Nicodemus could have been in that crowd as well. When Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and all the Pharisees were questioning Jesus and all the people involved, what had happened, Nicodemus was probably there watching, realizing that this, this man is different. Something is different about this guy. And finally, Jesus was arrested and he was tried before the Sanhedrin and Nicodemus was very likely there. And as Jesus is being 
beaten and ultimately as he's taken away, led away to be crucified, Nicodemus was there and as Jesus is lifted up on that cross, Nicodemus remembers. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will be saved. And something clicks inside of Nicodemus. Something clicks inside of Joseph of Arimathea. And suddenly this is not just another rabbi or a miracle worker. This is the Son of God who is being lifted up for the sins of the world. Suddenly their private faith is not enough. Something inside of them has changed. Look back at John 19 verse 40. So they... Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices. Remember, it was 75 pounds of spices that Nicodemus brought. And they took the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, Jewish people in this day and age did their burial burial ceremony very different than ours. What they would do is that they didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians had done. Uh, They would take a body and um, they they would douse it in perfumes and oils and they would take fabric and cloth and they would wrap the body in the fabric or the cloth much like you might see the Egyptians would have done to their to their mummies and they would lay the body inside of a tomb and the tomb was basically like a cave and there would be ledges carved out of the cave and so in one tomb there could be three or four or five or six bodies lying on the different ledges and what they would do with these bodies that are that are wrapped in the ointment and the oils and the fabric they would lay them in these tombs they would be there for up to a, a year and they would wait for the body to completely decompose and then they would go back in and they would take the remains of the person and put them in a small box an ossuary and they would take that box and sometimes they would leave it in the tomb or sometimes they would bury it but that was their burial custom so when they bring back the spices and the fragrance and the the, all the wrapping to wrap Jesus up 75 pounds is way over the top Uh, We know from Josephus and other historians of this day and age that when Herod the Great was buried and when another one of the great Jewish teachers, Gamaliel, was buried, they used 80 pounds. And Josephus says that was a lot. That That was worthy of a king. So when Jesus was buried, Nicodemus just didn't sneak a little bit of oil back. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds, enough that would have been worthy of a king. When Mary put oil on Jesus' feet. She used, um, she used just a little bit. Nicodemus brought about a hundred times of what Mary would have used when she anointed Jesus' feet in Bethany. So, so they were burying him, making a statement. Not just that they wanted him to have a proper Jewish burial, but they were saying, we believe this is the king. Look at verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now we know from the other Gospels, this tomb was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This was a new tomb that maybe he had bought. You know, he had been doing his, you know, his pre-planning for his funeral. We don't know what he had done. Those same salesmen that come to you probably found him somewhere and said, hey, let's pre-plan your funeral. So he had his brand new tomb. There were no bodies in it. No bodies had ever been laid in it. And so they take the body of Jesus into this 
tomb to bury him. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And I want you to think about something. Because you think, we, we, read that, we read this maybe every year at Easter time, you, you hear the story, and we kind of blow past Joseph of Arimathea and the, and the tomb in the garden. We kind of blow past Nicodemus showing back up, bringing the, bringing the burial fragrances. But do you know, if the Romans had had their way, Jesus' body would have been thrown into the city dump. Which means that if Jesus had been raised from the dead, nobody would have really known for sure had Jesus actually been dead. Was he, was he really dead? We didn't really see the body. If the Jews had had their way, Jesus would have been buried with all the other criminals in an unmarked tomb. And there wouldn't have been an empty tomb because there were all these other criminals there. And who would have known for sure? Was that really the body of Jesus? If Jesus had been buried in a tomb where there had been other bodies, if it hadn't been a brand new tomb that nobody else had ever used, if there had already been two or three bodies in there, the argument could have been, well, that body is missing, but we don't know which body was Jesus. Who could say for sure? When Joseph and Nicodemus stepped out of the shadows and into the light by asking for Jesus' body, they had no way of knowing that their act of public faith would pave the way for millions and millions of people to know the story of Jesus' resurrection. Nicodemus and Joseph's willingness to go public paved the way for you and for me to stand here today and talk about the resurrection of Jesus with confidence, knowing that Jesus is alive. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me just share with you a couple of ideas for us and for our faith and and how this brings us to a crossroads about what we're going to do with our faith as Christians here today. First of all, your public faith has the power to change someone's private world. Your public faith has the power to change someone's private world. I, I know for many of you, if you've ever been involved in any of the recovery movements, you know the power of the testimony who's broken an addiction, overcome an addiction. And how it gives you the courage to go on. Do you know that your public faith, your willingness to go public with your struggles, your willingness to go public with your faith is just the encouragement that somebody who may never even acknowledge that they heard your story may need to change their private world. It's one of the reasons why at Southside when we do baptisms, and next week we'll have a baptism on Easter Sunday, we'll show you a video of the person being baptized sharing their story. Because their public declaration of faith, even in baptism, has the power to change lives. Jesus said in John, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, you will be my witnesses. Who was he talking about? Well, surely he was talking about the disciples who had seen with their own eyes, but he wasn't just talking about the disciples. He's talking about all of us too. All of us who've experienced the life-changing power of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, that our testimony has the power to change somebody's life. That we are witnesses to what took place. That we continue to tell the story. That there is hope over sin and grave. That this world has hope in Jesus because of what took place at the resurrection. Your public faith has the power to change someone's private world. But second, your public faith is a response to Jesus' public shame. Think about this. Nicodemus and Joseph, as they publicly demonstrated their faith, it was in response to what they saw Jesus do. As they saw him beaten and crucified, as they saw him hung up on on that cross, they realized that he was doing a work that was in payment for all the sins of the world. All their law-keeping, all their religion was never going to make them right with God. 
And so out of response to what they saw Jesus do, his public shame, they were willing to go public with their faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Peter said that he himself bore our sin on that cross so that we might be dead to sin. Listen, what Jesus did publicly, his public humiliation on that cross was my public humiliation. And so for me to be willing to go public with my faith is just a response to the fact that Jesus was willing to go public with his shame so that I could be set free from the penalty of sin and death. Listen to what Jesus said in, John, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will also disown before my Father who is in heaven. Our public faith matters. And when you read this verse, it kind of sounds like a quid pro quo. But what if Jesus is simply giving you the anonymity that you want? What if all through your life, you go through life being ashamed of your faith in Jesus Christ? And before God, Jesus just gives you what you want, which is the anonymity. See, Jesus says, if you acknowledge me publicly, I acknowledge you publicly. But if you want to remain hidden, I will let you remain hidden. And finally, your public faith will cost you something. Nicodemus and Joseph were willing to risk their position. They were people who were respected. They were willing to risk their influence. They were willing to risk their resources. Joseph gave up a brand new tomb that had never even been used. They were willing to risk their futures in order to see that Jesus was taken down off that cross and treated like the king he was and buried in a tomb. Why? Why were they willing to risk all that? Because they believed he was who he said he was. Listen, I don't even know if they really knew that he was going to be raised from the dead in three days. I don't think they fully grasped that or understood what was going to happen. They were willing to risk their reputation, their possessions, their influence, because they believed he was the son of God, that he was the king. Listen, every one of you, every, every one of us, we all came to faith for selfish reasons, didn't we? I mean, we came to faith because we wanted Jesus to fix something. We wanted Jesus to fix our marriage. We wanted Jesus to fix our kids. We wanted to overcome an addiction. Maybe we just came to Jesus because we were afraid of hell and we thought maybe he's our get out of hell free card. I don't know. But we come to Jesus for selfish reasons. That's why we come. The problem is so many of us come to Jesus for selfish reasons and then we live our faith that way. For selfish reasons. But we cannot walk with Jesus and stay selfish about our faith. He called us to be his witnesses. He called us to go public. So I had to ask myself, what what are you willing to risk, Gary? What are you willing to risk, church? What are you willing to lose in order to go public with your faith? This morning we're going to share communion together. And um, as we practice communion here today, we're going to, um, in just a moment, we're going to invite you to partake. And communion is another one of those opportunities for a public display of our faith. And, and so for some of you, maybe you've not taken communion like this, but if you're here and you say, you know what, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith in him. You're going to have the opportunity to, to come down front and there are going to be some deacons down front who are going to serve you. And they're going to have just a little tray of bread 
And they're going to offer you the tray of bread and, and you just take a piece. And they're going to remind you that this is the body of Christ that's broken for you. And there's going to be somebody there with a, with a cup with some juice in it. And, and you're going to take the, the bread and you're going to dip it in the juice. And they're going to say, this is the blood of Christ that's been poured out for you. And then they're going to recite to you something that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. What is this? Is it just eating the bread and drinking the juice? Well, sure, that's, it's that. But what if this is the way Jesus lived? What if when he said, do this in remembrance of me, what he's saying is, live like this. Live to serve others. Live to give yourself away for others. Live to proclaim the hope and the peace that comes from being reconciled with God. What if when he said, do this in remembrance of me, what if he was asking you to sacrifice yourself so that others may see and experience the love of God? I'm going to ask those who are serving communion to come forward and take their positions. Our musicians are going to come as well. This morning as we, um, as we prepare to serve communion, um, we're going to ask you just to remain seated where you are maybe to take some time to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. We've got some folks who are, who are going to usher you forward just one row at a time, so don't feel like you need to stand in line. If you don't want to come forward, you don't have to come forward. If you're unable to come forward, they'll have elements there that they can share with you. But there will be a host at the right side of each pew who will walk back and release each row. As you come forward, just come forward to those who are serving, take communion. And as you go back, we would ask that you, uh, as you turn around and go back, that you go back to the opposite side of the pew so everyone who's coming forward can take communion um, in an orderly manner. I'm going to ask you to pray with me now as we prepare our hearts to share this communion together. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, that he was not ashamed of us when we were at our worst, but willing to even bear our shame himself on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we would be inspired by the testimony of Joseph and Nicodemus Two people who had a lot to lose by going public with their faith. But Lord, I pray for, for us today. Maybe there are secret disciples among us today who, are, who believe. But Father, who have just not yet found the courage to step out and go public with their faith. Lord, I pray that even in communion, Lord, that, that even just this small step forward might be a step to pro- publicly proclaim and publicly witness the life change that you brought about in us, but also the truth of what you did 2,000 years ago when you gave your life and when God raised you from the dead. So, Father, as we share in this communion, we pray that you'd stir our hearts, remind us of the sacrifice, and, Father, we pray that we might live our lives in such a way that we would seek to follow Jesus in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.